basically he was working as a consultant to the Dallas Cowboys, uh, but trying to train their quarterbacks how to play that game fast. He claimed it was teachable that you could maybe as a quarterback has to take in the whole big picture, the open focus mode, and see the whole picture, lock in on a receiver, and then only see the receiver and exclude everything else. So in that case, just in a matter of seconds, hopefully, fractions of a second even, yeah. switch modes from open, parallel, massively parallel to tightly focused on a tar on an objective mode. So right. Really, that's where I see consciousness existing. It's like the what it feels like to be in superposition. Mm -hmm. Uncollapsed wave form. Once you've decided something, then it's, I mean, consciousness in the system to me as a controls engineer is where we handle the undecidable. And so that's why I'm on the same wavelength as Roger Penrose when I say it's got to be a, a a quantum process involved in all of this when it comes to consciousness and and I basically and you know and within the spectrum of consciousness I see masculine consciousness being a serially dominated mix of the two parallel and it, it's more deterministic but it's still got to have that tension with the background and feminine is more holistically oriented but it's still got to have that objective center that's provided by the masculine side so just saying we're playing with a spectrum of consciousness across the space that's one side closer to the parallel aspects of it and one side closer to the linear serial aspects of it all. So Jeff, welcome to simulation. Thanks. Good to have you on. Also really good to get connected by Ori for yeah. the episode. Yeah. Looking forward to playing together, especially on the conversation of paradox which is so fundamental uh, to the nature of what this is so let's there's there's sort of uh two ways we can take this we can take this in giving a bunch of context about uh you and how you came to where you are today which i think is helpful and then we can also jump straight in to paradox you can also weave uh if you'd like yeah the two so why don't i'll pass it over to you and you can uh take take over and then i'll interject as we as we go through yeah some some go with the flow idea works pretty good i think but one problem i'm facing here paradoxically is that the language part of my brain is the opposite side from where I mostly live. <laughs> anyway, because I, I look at it as... Uh, anyway, 
are, are I, I kind of feel like we are occupying a an adaptive general purpose controller, which is our neurology of our, our evolved neurology of our brain. And for some weird reason, it had to be split in half with specialized hemispheres. Mm-hmm. And if you get into it very far, there's a cleft in the brain front to back that also compartmentalizes those hemispheres more. And so, so what I, my point of view from personal experience and interpretation of that experience is, is that I'm running on a four-cylinder paradox engine. <laughs> okay. Uh, currently, previously, I was probably running on a two-cylinder paradox engine. Um, and the cylinders of that, I would kind of throw into a Briggs-Myers context of thinking, intuition, sensing, feeling. It's like there's specialized sub-brains that we're working from that help us navigate and survive in the world from, I mean, somehow through evolutionary biology, we've, our system has evolved to survive in the world and there's these different modes of survival that are, are apparently have been discovered by evolution and is reflected in our interpretation of personality theory of what's really a pretty complex mess in our heads that you know, to, to say that it's clean cut this way is asking too much. <laughs> it's, it's, um, one way, I mean, for me, I started out, you know, in hindsight, being mostly running on an introverted, which is prefrontal cortex system, far as I know, thinking intuition, most dominant intuition probably system. So, and dominant intuition's kind of on the opposite side of the hardware that's processing body sense and and some of the language stuff from my understanding of generalizations of cognitive, neurotypical cognitive architecture. So, that's where I'm coming from, just based on my being a controls engineer by training and and trying to understand how 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 a self-tuning control system can be set up and and how we can be evolved into that. And and plus I played around with some tricks to move between dominance patterns. Uh, when I was around 30, I played around with some Kundalini breathing tricks that would shift hemispherical dominance, and I found that I could. And it, I mean, it sounded bogus to me because I'm not into that at all, but I found like that I could switch between uh, more of the mm-hmm. right dominant, which was probably my normal pattern, to more of a left dominant by using their tricks. and. Tried it out climbing a local mountain peak for my 31st birthday that I'd never dared do it before. And and I finally figured out the reason I couldn't stand it was because my visual system was throwing these images of me falling as I tried to go up 
precarious trails and and then you know watching other people even at heights i would see them falling. i assume i just interpret that as an evolved survival thing more of a maternal trait than than anything probably and then by using the breathing techniques that i played around with to switch to more of a left hemisphere dominance all that just went away and all i was i was just right there where's the next handhold where's the next foothold going up without any of that flashing into my consciousness and so mm-hmm. right the idea that i could move my consciousness around in the hardware right probably manipulating blood flow or attention yes yes was anyway it was it made me have a different point of view of what I was and what defined me because it's right. like I was just one thing based on my natural consciousness state, but that there was all sorts of possibilities depending on where I was at in my head at the time, basically. Right. So, and which makes sense and just want to hit the ball back and say, it makes perfect sense also because the modulatory nature is also based in electromagnetic principle as well. So it makes sense that neurologically speaking, we could be talking about oxygen or, um, or, or glucose or blood. We could be talking about these types of things and even more fundamentally, even more, layer zero let's say is energy or electromagnetism and feeling neural neurologically speaking the feeling one's ability to shift between something that's tremendously logical or ordered patterned and something that is absolutely not that whatsoever and is has no form at all has no logic is totally uh, intuitive could be primal um there's many <clears throat> and there's many ways that those two things interplay and to get really good at all of that and modulating between that can you you know modulating into a sense of self and other and then modulating out of a sense of self and other into one consciousness so yeah, there's a this is this is really fundamental. It's crucial. Yes, I, I found that by playing around with that at that like I took a, a standardized job service type dexterity test during this time. I was playing around with that when I was 30, 31 roughly, and. And when I was at 15, I'd had to take the exact same test, moving washers on pegs. And I got sixth percentile when I was 15, totally introverted, totally not connected to my body. But then at that, when I was doing this over again, I was playing around with this and I I decided I was going to become my hands for this test. And so I just put all of my attention into, into my hands while I performed the test and I came in with like 96 percentile on dexterity 
at that point just by becoming my hands for the dexterity test. So right. Really convinced me that we can change what's considered to be fixed traits or not so fixed. It's very dynamic, actually. Uh, the thing I also found that I could put my attention uh, by playing around with the left right dominance, I could put myself in the middle just by intentionality with my intention system. Yes. And then just intuitively, I felt like somewhere in the center should be the best play. I mean, I felt felt like it was a good place to be it was just sort of centered between those two yes. possibilities exactly like that was the most spacious exactly place to be. okay and so i played around with that it took effort i sort of didn't follow through forever on that i sort of worked towards it but uh about 20 years later i was ex trying to understand some developmental things that come about in people and get locked in in early childhood, things to do with attachment system and and shame and uh, probably insecure attachment style in the frame of John Bowlby. Uh, anyway, so I said, well, shame's just a word. I want to go into shame. I want to feel it viscerally. What, what is this thing that people are, are talking about, which is it feels like suicide to actually <laughs> anyway please continue uh, going there if you wish well all I know is I learned to be careful what, what you ask for <laughs> anyway uh, a couple days after I did that in a safe container was an online group that I was involved in at the time. Uh, I was listening to The Universe in a Single Atom on the audiobook while I was working, which Universe in a Single Atom seems like a pretty good play on Paradox, actually. Yeah. To the book by the Dalai Lama. Uh, I just had this sudden bang, one cycle, I mean, from a control, from my engineering training, I would say it was an instantaneous shift to a different stable harmonic in right. the system, however, the right. however consciousness fits together with the body, which I don't claim to have that figured out totally to the bottom, but it, but it happened, I mean, so now I've got this thing that I don't believe in, I've got to deal with, because Part of it felt like a connecting, which crossed the brain as a connecting, but it felt like a non-local connecting, like yes. reconnecting with source is you know, yes. something. This this light cloud kind of yes, 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 yes. It also felt like I was completing a a conceptual structure that that all of a sudden there, there'd been this discomfort or this disease that I'd been living with, and all of a sudden that was gone. It's like all of a sudden they, the socially conveyed model that I had of the, the world and how things worked 
got reassembled into something that made sense to me finally. And there wasn't right. any conceptual distress anymore. Right. Which <laughs> I'd come in the process of listening to the Dalai Lama stuff mostly. But right. anyway. And so that Beautiful. made me feel like I was suddenly manic. It was pretty intense. Mm-hmm. And it took me a few months to sort. I mean, two months of it was really intense, like emotionally, like I went from thinking an intuitive dominant into a more extroverted, I was suddenly extroverted on the Briggs-Myers test if I did one, or before I'd been introverted. And I was really body sense aware and emotionally off the charts from my history. And so... Over a period of a couple of months, I figured out how to tame that and control it and surf it, sort of. And yes, yes. Since that time, I sort of weave in and out of that introverted, extroverted space, depending on what's going on in my life today. Right. But it got to be really interesting. What is consciousness? What? Right. How does this fit together? It's like, yeah, what's going on here? Right. That's the thread to pull. And and yeah. it also was, you know, there was a materialist explanation of hemispheres connecting, but it was also this thing that people talk about in religion and spirituality of of reconnecting with source, which, so I could have my materialist explanation, which for me is probably more comfortable. But it also had the other property, too, which is one thing that got me kind of paying attention to paradox early on in that, going into that mode, if that makes sense. Yes. I would like to ask about if you feel like the nature of shame is very directly at the root intertwined with the nature of self. Yeah. I've, I actually went through a journey. I've got a whole, I probably got two feet of shelf of books on shame. Uh, the immediate feeling was sh- in that experience was shame is the root of all suffering and evil in the world. But right. uh, there's actually a centeredness between there and I mean so after a journey through understanding how shame is so so part of that was those experiences and I found out from talking to other people it is a really narcissistic surge of anyway one friend called it stink of narcissism that comes with those experience those shifts like that mm-hmm. and and so there's a so there's a part of shame that keeps us grounded that we're imperfect works in progress yeah yeah that, that's actually beneficial and grounding and helpful and there's the shame there's another kind of shame that's I mean, from an evolutionary point of view, this is an inhibitory drive 
that makes us conform to the social environment we're born into. Yes, yes. And there's inherent cultural flaws in every system that are a problem. And the obvious one that's pretty common all over, between all religions, is just this maldominance of this narrative that skews society to a certain masculine bias that's really not doing us any favors at this point. The source of a lot of our cultural problems, but mm-hmm. anyway, there's so so I have a from from a system dynamics point of view from my training. If if you look at the evolution of life on the planet, there's a lot of evolution, survival of the fittest, evolution by selection, which is a slow adaptation that requires most of the way to extinction events to realign and discover how to survive in a given local environment. And it, it has a tendency to just go extinct. And so, and, and that's where you find a lot of insects, microbes, but as, and even the, the, lizard brain stuff, you know, it, it got to an unstable point in dinosaurs that they just went extinct. And the mammals that replaced them are a lot better at adapting in one. So there, there's ge- genetics has evolved so that we can survive in a variety of environments that we adapt to in our early childhood to discover those. And if you go down the mammalian, even reptilian cycle that plays out there too. So so there's adaptation in the life cycle of the individual in the early embryo, you know, early phases of that development, adapt to the local environment, and then they're kind of locked in, which is a problem with some of the personality, what gets classified as personality disorders, but are actually good adaptation to a bad environment, (laughs) okay? You're born into a dangerous environment. You're not supposed to feel safe in that environment. Unfortunately, it's really not a happy life, but it is a survival life. I like to use cats for a proxy rather than talk about people so much because it's more politically correct to talk about feral cats Mm -hmm. and how they're adapted to survive and be afraid of, I mean, they're always on the edge. They're always looking for danger. Right. Or you've got the cat that was born in the house. It's always safe. Everything's wonderful. There's no danger. They're just all purrs and fun. And and there's that possibility for adaptation is in the genetics of cats, obviously. And he, I'm arguing humans, most, most mammals have that adaptation possibility built into them. And so rather than saying there's personality disorders in humans, there's actually just normal adaptation to the environment they were born into. Right. And and then beyond that, we have our language and and memes and memetics are a right. way to adapt within a mature life cycle. It's, you know, 
our conditioning was tied in pretty tightly in early childhood, but we can still adapt to new environments through through learning and cultural transmission with language and whatever other systems we have for higher functions. So I see that there's these different, there's this, been this evolution of adaptability that's been playing out and there's not enough respect for it in society. And it's all just a work in progress and it's not doing us any good to demonize other social orders that we don't understand. It's more a matter of being able to take different points of view based on where people are coming from and being able to sort it out in a constructive, healthy manner, which requires being able to sit in the middle between the two Posing points of view. Absolutely. I mean, all you have to do is look at the U.S. Congress to figure out exactly the system's broken, and taking people down the lizard brain keeps it that way. Yes. Uh, we need higher cognitive functions to actually sort out the problems. Right. We've created for ourselves. Yes. Be able to adapt to a really rapidly changing environment. Right. If that makes sense. Of course. It's great hearing you weave the the cosmological, evolutionary, and biological into the neurological and spiritual and deconstructive uh, conditioning side of things. And really resonant. <clears throat> and hmm. yes, very simply put, um, all always has been and always will be that source light cloud as you described and that's part of the game of the, the paradox that well how can it be that and how can I still feel a sense of self and and separation and location why do i still feel location uh, a sense of identity that's separate from that source and whatnot and so there's that conversation that we can go uh and play on and then there's another conversation that i feel like we can play on which is the formation and this might actually be more it might be better to start here and then we'll get there which is what else is really at the root along with shame? Or what does shame, let's say, evolve into that is more easily uh, acknowledgeable, let's say, to start pulling on the thread into one's yeah. subconscious? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really get to the point on that very well. Um, so, so from a dynamics point of view, I, the neocortex, I think, I feel like we're so adaptive, adaptable at this point that the system is inherently unstable and that we need intergenerational transfer to, of culture to keep the system stable. Uh, and that shame is what enforces that. 
and it's a survival thing and it's important it ha it has its place in the system for intergenerational transfer of content that we need to learn okay so it has its place um, i have a a picture that i drew for a presentation one time that looks like a mushroom cloud Mm -hmm. And if you, an atomic explosion goes off, there's a ball, there's just recreation, and then there's a column that raises vertically, cylindrically. And that's how I see the individuation path going as constrained by the cultural environment. And it it's important because without that, I would say people become so I mean, get there's a percentage of the population where that's the case and those are the people we classify as psychopaths or sociopaths because they don't have that inhibition it doesn't give them the ability to resonate with others empathically and they just it's just a game it's all just a game there's no they don't feel that it feels like you're going to die if you don't conform here. They can do whatever they want. And they and they rise to the top of our culture because they they can play. The current culture is pretty much focused on Ayn Rand-type survival of the fittest is glory right. point of view. Right. And they can do it shamelessly. They can do yeah. it without worrying about hurting other people. Um, right. I feel like what I experienced is that shame system, that change in topology took the shame part offline by going into it and dying to the being totally transparent, nothing to worry about that way anymore, caused that system to shut down, caused all four cylinders to integrate correctly without this hierarchical enforcement of conformity playing anymore and so then that's the top of the mushroom cloud basically this it's a very creative space it's what we need for solving problems it's what we need for be able to hold different points of view in place without having to choose between them S say that say that again what it, 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 which part so that sh so that the the sudden onset that I experienced, I mean, there's different versions of this. It can be slow or sudden, but the sudden version, I feel like it it was that system dropping out. I mean, I yeah, confronted yeah. it head on, right? It dropped out, and there's this sudden shift to another topology of consciousness that was integrating the four the four more horizontal aspects of interpreting reality and surviving in the world in that that paradox engine point of view so i was running on all four cylinders and and that inhibitory there, there, there's a sounding far-fetched point of view that that some people have come across point to and that's the idea of a toroidal universe and i would say maybe a toroidal consciousness that can only be integrating so much at once and that if it's integrating hierarchically so that we're conforming 
It's integrating the autonomic nervous system inhibitory stuff that's associated with shame, that it can only pull in part of the this horizontal plane that I'm just that's the four cylinders. And so it's like it just flipped an axis and the shame went away and the right. other all four were integrating that. That's why I suddenly experiencing my body sense and my emotions so tightly because those had been what Jungians would put in shadow. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not in shadow. And it's just instantly flipped an axis and the other stuff shut down. So now I'm a functional psychopath because I don't feel shame anymore. It's like the mushroom cloud going horizontal now because it reached a certain level in the confinement. I don't know. Don't, I mean, I'm pretty good on fluid mechanics, but I still don't claim to understand the mushroom cloud all the way to the bottom, but it happens, you know. It, there's this confining column that goes, that rises. It's got the energy to rise in a confined column up to a point, and then it just sort of spreads out. And, right. And it's the sh- it's this inhibitory shame that's the confining space to socialize us up to a point. Once right. we're socialized properly to conform in the environment we're in, then we're cut loose to do our thing creatively and explore possibilities and and help society find a better way, maybe. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> anyway, it's a... Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's my it, yeah. it's a work in progress, but it's my interpretation of what makes sense to me the best in the system. I really enjoy that, and it feels good. Now, um, there are a couple things here. Um, <clears throat> one of them is I would like to do a definition of shame and it looks like the first one when you search for it online is very powerful um a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior so would you first would you uh, I have a feel- favorite one. Yes, please. It's mathematical. Uh, so there's a book that was a joint project between Carl Rogers and Barry Stevens. So you've got the feminine Barry's. I mean, she wrote alternating sections with Carl Rogers to try and explain his point of view in a more feminine interpretation, which was a, a really good book. And in there, she has a, a definition. It's shame is the difference between how I perceive myself to be and how I perceive society expects me to be. Mm-hmm. Very concise. And pretty much nails it on the head to me. It's just, it, it's a perception of, it's just, it's like what it feels like to not conform to the expectations that we feel like society expresses from, expects from us. 
And, and it's mm -hmm. totally subjective. It's totally from our point of view. It's not like it's necessarily actually what society expects from us, but it's how we perceive it, how it's been right. How it's been transferred to us as an expectation from those around us and mostly unspoken. A lot of it's body right. language. Right. I mean, it's not like just rules written down in a book somewhere. Your society doesn't even follow those. <laughs> It's interesting because the way that you just described it is very powerful. And I love that. And then the first definition that seemed to pull up um, seemed to have a, a deep resonance with the word repentance. So... <clears throat> I mean, that's one thing the Catholic Church gets right, in my opinion, is they, yes. they're confessional. Yes. I yes. Mean, yes. They get that right. 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 <clears throat> because we could say that the core thing that we're uh, talking about, which is, let's say, union with this source like cloud, is accessed through this style of inner work um, so repentance or in this uh, definition the going inward into the most painful uh, emotions that one carries perhaps like rocks within oneself are some of the greatest ways especially when some of those rocks have to do with our own uh, immoral behavior. Uh, that's one of the best ways to uh, transmute those rocks into the very air that they are made of. And then feel expansion and feel healing and feel space and love. And that seems to be the whole game that's being played. So that is a very powerful root. And then I like what you said too, because if I'm creating any sense of separation, I'm automatically interested in how I'm being seen or perceived. Because I'm localizing myself, I'm creating an illusion of a separate other, and then I'm concerned about the way that they're perceiving me. Right. And then that whole, that is at the root, that explodes into so many other perceptions of shame and lack and um, all different kinds of, of, uh, concerns and worries and anxieties and depressions and all this type of stuff. Yeah, that's powerful. There's another aspect to this that I was especially obvious to me when I had that sudden shift, and that is uh, we, we all need, I mean, because of the instability in, in the individual and the uh, we, we need feedback. We need validation. 
I mean, it's controls in there. Obviously, I like feedback, feed forward and feedback mm -hmm. are opposites that play against each other in this paradox space. And feed forward is the genetics, a lot of it, and feedback is how we how we learn from our mistakes and and adapt. Uh, but we, we talk about a, a lot of those early problems that have to do with shame come from invalidation is a, is a very literal form of trauma right it doesn't show bruises but right but just invalidating your worth as a person uh your basic instincts to behave a certain way uh, there's there's all sorts of ways that we can be invalidated that cause a kind of trauma and that's what the i mean Aside from physical trauma being being obvious and causing problems, there, there's just a. I don't think anybody escapes that kind of invalidation trauma. Yes, even in the best of circumstances. Right. Yeah, and then, that's so good. <laughs> one of my one of my close friends, uh, Sonia, recently said what would it look like this is with uh, like teaching how to interact with let's say a close family something like what would it look like if uh, if you weren't constantly in an argument with who I am yeah so there's there's always some sort of a so much invalidation trauma happening in that in that regard like not basically not allowing uh to be what is the the, the natural natural of what is yeah not allowing that being in an argument with it yeah and Eckhart totally gets into stuff like that I think in his books and stuff and I've come across quite a few people who've got benefit from his version of that. Yeah, so I could probably recommend him, even though I haven't personally got into it that deep. He he has this model of a pain body, and anyway, I know quite right. a few people who've been helped by his books as far as an external reference. Right. So there's an aspect of paradox and you touched on it in the individual versus collective, the unity versus individual separation. Uh, it's one that Mikey brought to my attention in a book uh, from an EKG guy called The Focal Non-Focal attention system well he doesn't he calls it open focus versus mm -hmm. focal anyway so which is part of how we there's where we put our attention which is really focal attention versus the background yes that, that occurs in yes so that's one place i really got into paradox right that's a very powerful entry point it's It, it's also the perfect one for the 
localized, non-localized, which is such sure. a that's such a perfect one for waking up. It's such a good one. Yeah. I, I have a map that I've created around a Taoist point of view that basically it, it, it's yin and yang and all the serial versus parallel modes and, and the space in between that and basically it's the space where I feel consciousness exists in different degrees. Parallel dominant versus serial dominant and a space in between. Anyway. Ex explain parallel versus serial dominant. Explain the map. Well, I mean, part of what I've done a whole presentation on was parallel learning. Uh, a good, I mean, there's something in early childhood called parallel play where basically kids watch other people play and do the same, other kids play and they imitate. It's, it's, it's aligned with imprinting and more of an animal domain, but a good example of it would be my oldest son when he was three times, uh, he was, he liked maze puzzles and he would just, I bought him a whole book of maze puzzles, but he would just look at a maze and draw the answer. Mm -hmm. There was no trial and error. He just, his visual cortex was solving it without any thought processes. Just, it just presented, it's gasol. It, it's, a lot of people would call it intuition but it's really a parallel processing thing that presents the results all at once. There's no paper trail on it. We get into that in, in AI systems, right? And it's also, I mean, it's just how the visual cortex works. So everything's massively parallel. Mm -hmm. uh, the same son, when he got to algebra, had problems because they could present a problem to him and he could write the answer, but he couldn't show any steps in between. <laughs> so mm -hmm. he had to learn how to go through the steps because they marked it wrong when they just presented the answer gestalt. But of course, algebra is all about proofs. It's got to be logical, linear. But I, Is that serial? That's, that's parallel. Well, the, all the steps in between are serial, yeah. Just, right. Uh, there's also an equivalence between seri or between parallel and rotation. I mean, I got into that in mind ventilation as an undergrad working with one prof professor I worked for wanted me to prove something. Anyway, there was a way you could actually remap mind ventilation systems by using rotational elements together with translational elements, and it's all separated kind of neatly. It's kind of weird anyway. Just in mechanical engineering, there's lots of translation versus rotation stuff to deal with. This led me to the idea that there's a basic paradox in the universe from the get-go of rotation versus translation. And in consciousness as well. It's, call it masculine, feminine, or you can call it, is it parallel or versus serial. I mean, we, we talk about, I mean, 
the Buddhists are into causality big time, which is linear causal stuff. But there's another kind of causality that's parallel. Like just because you see a whole bunch of turtles popping out of the ground on the beach someplace doesn't mean it's not linearly causal, but massively parallel type. All the eggs that were laid at once are hatching at once. So just there's it's a different kind of causality. And we're getting lots of, I mean, Turing machines are are based on linear processes. But the graphic stuff they're coming out with is massively parallel and mm -hmm. presents something that's complementary. I mean, there, there's a different words that fit together with paradox. Complementarity is one of them. You know, it takes both sides to make a whole in a complementary way, just wave-particle duality. The idea that you can have something that, depending on how you look at it, is, comes through as a particle versus it comes through as a wave. and It can be both, depending on your point of view. That's a paradox, isn't it? Right. It, gets, it gets described as complementarity. Right. And to so, me, it's probably a, a local versus focal, or a focal versus non-focal kind of paradox. Right, right. <clears throat> so, one of the ways to look at this, and for those um, listening on audio, I would recommend also checking out the video version where this is embedded. So is that the the complemental the complementality complementarity complementarity uh, yes complementarity <clears throat> um the, uh, the simultaneity the um the both and neither the all of that um, is is the middle or is the whole thing and then one of the best ways to describe the indescribable is through this paradoxical viewing of it so paradox and ineffable are probably tightly related yes Yes. Right. There's another word that comes up. And there's another aspect to this that has to do with Godel's incompleteness theorem, which is decidability. And, and the part, there's a boundary between the computable and, what, and the rest of the universe. I mean, whenever we try and objectify everything there's a limit that what can be objectified and and what can be computed by a turing machine and there's a there's a territory to explore in that direction probably falls under the word oracles continue uh and and really that's where i see consciousness 
existing. It's like the, what it feels like to be in superposition. Mm -hmm. Uncollapsed wave form. Once you've decided something, then it's, I mean, consciousness in the system to me as a controls engineer is where we handle the undecidable. And so that's why I'm on the same wavelength as Roger Penrose when I say it's got to be a, a, a quantum process involved in all of this when it comes to consciousness. And, and I basically, and, you know, and within the spectrum of consciousness, I see masculine consciousness being a serially dominated mix of the two parallel and it, it's more deterministic but it's still got to have that tension with the background and feminine is more holistically oriented but it's still got to have that objective center that's provided by the masculine side so just saying we're playing with a spectrum of consciousness across the space that's one side closer to the parallel aspects of it and one side closer to the linear serial aspects of it all. Right. Anyone? Right, and the nice thing about being very malleable in one's modulatory ability is to not box oneself into category and therefore to be boxless and to be able to navigate <clears throat> into what can be more parallel or more serial and call upon frequencies of those domains as is in flow. The, the one book I got into by Les Femhe on the open focus brand was basically he was working as a consultant to the Dallas Cowboys uh, trying to train their quarterbacks how to play that game fast he claimed it was teachable that you could maybe as a quarterback has to take in the whole big picture the open focus mode and see the whole picture lock in on a receiver and then only see the receiver and exclude everything else. So in that case, just in a matter of seconds, hopefully, fractions of a second even, yes. switch modes from open, parallel, massively parallel to tightly focused on a tar on objective mode. So, right. Okay. That's great that you bring up sport. It's one of the best analogies it feels like and so relatable to so many right. uh, it is really the simultaneity of taking in the whole while also being able to focalize on the specific thing that needs to happen at that time and it's really really beautiful it's like also, it's very relatable, even if one didn't necessarily go really hard in playing sports in one's life. So many people are fans of sport. Right. So therefore, when you're a fan of sport, you can also see this happening where you're taking in the whole of the field or the court or both teams and et cetera. 
and then at the same time the field and then at the same time you're honed in on where is the ball right now who is around the ball where's the ball moving and uh that's one of the best yeah it's a really good analogy yeah well one of the things that he brings up in that book is he he says from an evolutionary point of view it's the lion lioness on the hunt uh taking in a herd of gazelles or whatever and then having to lock in on one specific target and take it down and and being able to being able to focus on one is important for survival but also it's tied in with the sympathetic nervous system uh, for the attack mode and so by being in focal mode a lot we're also in sympathetic activation if I mean I don't know how Mm-hmm. How, how everybody relates to that term but mm-hmm. in the autonomic nervous system there's a sympathetic and a parasympathetic axis of that and and the sympathetic axis is what's getting us in trouble in our culture right. health wise and physiological health wise and, and it's because anything that uses focal attention is sort of brings along with it some level of activation which is yes Partly, just looking at a screen in front of you with your right. attention system takes you there to some extent. Anyway, it totally so does. It totally kind of the, does. And which yes. brings us to another word for paradox, which is a catch-22. <laughs> for whoever's familiar with movie versions mm-hmm. of paradox. Right. Oh, man. <clears throat> if you look at so linear this is interesting we, we could we could even say that the the most seemingly uh, distorted part of the perfection is the over focalization which is also the most most beautiful part of of it at the same time. <laughs> well, if if you t- talk about getting out on a vista and being in awe and wonder at the big picture, that's sort of the antidote to it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, really bringing you thing, to your knees. Really yeah. bringing bringing you to your knees in awe of the beauty, because it's both the most distorted, like. The veil of separation being the most, the, the very edge of the attractor of Maya, and it being also the most beautiful aspect of creation is God totally forgetting itself in its illusion. Yeah. So good. It's going to mention it's. Part of the idea of paradox is that as soon as things become self-referential, like in object language, the sentence, all you have to do to create a paradox with language is to make it self-referential. So I make the statement, this sentence is untrue, or this sentence is a lie, this statement is a lie. By the time it becomes self-referential, 
it's really easy to create a paradox, a logical paradox. Because if the statement's true, it's false, and if it's false, it's true. Problem. It, it doesn't take much to do is once it becomes self-referential and and our consciousness is really self-referential i mean being aware of ourselves and what we're experiencing is a very self-referential process so it's not shouldn't be too surprising that it would be in that space of, of paradox Right. I mean, and then paradox doesn't have to be two choices. It can just, it can be a whole spectrum of choices. Which is one thing that got me into this mess in the first place was trying to understand black and white thinking mm-hmm. and how that can be versus being able to see the gray areas in between. And being able to see the gray areas is being able to handle paradox, basically. Right. It doesn't have to be black or white. It can be all these other choices in between. You can even have colors. So it's what makes our reality so interesting and complicated mess. Mm-hmm. Hopefully fun. It's unbelievably fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's very indescribable, ineffable, paradoxical, superpositioned. It's very interesting because even the superposition, it's almost a... Yeah, it's a way to say all of all of it, all of it, and none of it. And that's kind of the end of it. And um, <laughs> uh, and then it's and then it feels really good. It feels really good. It should feel really good, um, because. Um, one should feel very final. One should feel very complete. One should feel uh, very empty of their own conditioning and empty of their own sense of self and empty of their own narrative and their own story. And should feel more and more like a clear vessel and a clear channel for whatever reflectiveness the collective is seeking for their own healing and awakening. And that it's a whole different existence that is uh, harmonically chiming the body. Uh, it's a whole different feeling. Um, it's really finding what was never lost. Yeah. So there's a paradox and the interpretations of non-duality, uh, one being yeah, 
being in the now idea, but I would contrast that with a sense of detachment, like there's also a meta-observer detached point of view from the now. It makes the good, the bad, and the ugly tolerable. Yeah. Because you're not, I mean, there's a space that's created in non-duality that is just a little bit removed from the intensity of it. And it might take a while to get there through. Well, anyway, there's two aspects to what gets thrown in there to me as one idea in the mystical experience domain or non-dual domain. Right. You could say that the it expresses itself in where there is an absolute transcendent spaciousness. And at the same time, there is an absolute feeling of totally everything. And, yeah. So... But, but one aspect of it, it just gives some space to come up with new ideas, I think. It's a creative, it's, it's less tightly bounded by what's allowed. And so you get yeah. all these divergent behaviors coming yes. up. People that tend to get them locked up sometimes. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and then there's a condition there's a conditioning that people bring to those experiences that comes up with all sorts of different points of view that are kind of all the same thing, but I think, I mean, like if you look at the history of the Mormon religion where I grew up, there was a column of light and God appeared before Joseph Smith and blessed him to be keeper of the priesthood and some things like that, that, conformed with his training up to that point in time, his expectation. There's an expectation component to it, I guess, based on our prior conditioning. And my expect, what I brought to the experience was radical agnosticism, probably. So that's still where I'm at, pretty much, with the paradox thing. Hasn't really changed. Whatever I was conditioned to before is still my condition. Right. I think those those shifts change. So there's like the idea of qualia comes in for me. I mean, didn't really think about it too much until yes. I got going just hanging out with Dave Chalmers and science of consciousness, but I've come to the point where I view qualia as like a natural language encoded in our genetics. And if you right. look at what smells good to me versus what smells good to a fly, obviously they are like oppositely encoded. The fly likes things decomposing, smelling like shit, and I don't, and I'm repulsed by it. And somehow in the genome, there's probably encoding for that. Somehow it comes into play. And so... It's it's like our body and our genetic code has this built-in language that tells us how we're supposed to feel about things, and and that basically all of our conscious experiences is just built with qualia. But it's like how it's pixelated. It's kind of my point of view on this. 
and that there might be a possibility to break that code. Mm -hmm. Probably in a Euler number space, if I it was my intuition about it, but somehow or other, we interpret our, our body interprets the world for us, builds this reality, maintains this reality in a hologram that's pixelated with qualia. Right. And how that, and so there's there, somehow there's a language there that I feel like we have some hope of understanding yeah. better. At the very least, we could map that better. If stuff I come across is pretty broad brush on mapping with it. There's all sorts of different flavors of pain, for instance, or pleasure or color or what's the quality of feeling right about something. I mean, <laughs> feeling like you know the right, you're sure of yourself is got to be some kind of a quality of mapping. And I think there's a lot of unexplored territory in that direction. Sometimes I think about how to build conscious, synthetic consciousness and, and conscious, I mean, I kind of see us as biological meat robots and we're being programmed by our conscious experience. And if we're growing up in this dangerous environment and we're afraid of everything or fight or flight most of the time, then that's all being encoded in our neurology to become subconscious. And, and we're navigating that with consciousness and solving the problems. And after it becomes routine, then it's just encoded in the neurology and reduced to subconscious processes. It doesn't require, con if it's computable, it doesn't require consciousness anymore. Consciousness is where we're navigating it. What's not computable. Determin clearly deterministic. Anyway. Yeah, there's a certain qualia of relaxation. Yeah. <clears throat> really, that peace and relaxation space yeah really that sort of like vacuuming away of self back into the void and the source uh, and then whatever is left uh, which can be some occasional fabrications of of, of self but then even that is more slightly subtly deconditioned and unwound and just greater and greater peace love space all of that like the ability to relax and not do anything and feel the absolute perfection that everything is is the most unrecognizable uh, skill <laughs> um, and <clears throat> like what is the quality of that what is um, 
the internal subjective experience of it because it, it really it feels like divinity it feels like crying because everything's so perfect and you're not doing anything so everything is automatically worthy and love and it's all this type of what are those emotions what are those feelings that are coming up and um and then yeah what how would we go about how would we go about mapping that and at the same time then having that urge of oh my bladder is full now now it's using the bathroom or now i'm thirsty and so now i'm going to go drink some water i'm hungry so now i eat some food and etc and how are we architecting out because this is another core thing about realization is that mind creates reality so whatever is leaving right here uh, that is creating reality so if what is leaving is oriented around what is existing now we're basically talking about the past so only by talking about the highest ideal possible just as an example heaven on earth or whatever abundant prosperous civilization you want for children and grandchildren to revel in for millennia only by holding that in your heart in your gut in the deepest parts of you and being unmovable or unshakable from that can that actually manifest it's the only way it can manifest because otherwise you the same trigger will come up about some sort of a political conversation and before you know it there'll be arguments and all this type of stuff so the only role you have is to constantly be immovable in heaven on earth and what does that feel like what does it feel like to know without a shadow of a doubt that that is what this is meant to do here yeah for me i think it's really important to be able to be at peace with where things are now both within ourselves and within the society we exist in and it takes a little bit of detachment to do that i think especially with society but i mean one argument i play around with is you know there's lots of, i mean the valley where i live has been the site of a, multiple utopian experiments over it's since white men drove the indians out basically to set up their utopias here and it hasn't played out well so far uh, but there's that desire to come up with a better system and and in the current environment, there's a really strong, what I would call wonderful family syndrome, where everything's got to be wonderful, or it's just not worth it. And, and so your ideal is, okay, everything's wonderful, nothing ever goes wrong, and then I die. Is that really a wonderful life? <laughs> or would it, you really want to get drugged through the muck and overcome something and 
do something meaningful and then is that what's a wonderful life, you know? Right. A lot of people aspire to the idea that life should just be easy and wonderful, utopian, ideal, everything, never a crossword, and have cousins who grew up in an approximation to that, and they have not fared well in life past their immediate house of origin because they weren't prepared for the real world very well. And so there's one thing I get into is just how adaptive filtering works in our in our brains and uh, obvious to me is that our brains are conditioned by or a lot of it's driven by expectations what we see is what we're expecting to see it's an anticipatory biased filter and if we've grown up in a very safe environment like with the cats we have an expectation that that's what we're going to see and if we have grown up in a violent unsafe and housed and that's what we expect to see and it's almost it's a self-fulfilling expectation we'll i mean it, it's it's like we there's almost a mind blindness to things that we aren't expecting to see because i mean there's a story of, i don't know if it's true or not of captain cook sailing into a harbor where there were aborigines in australia and uh, they were just out there in their fishing boats with this big sailing ship coming into their harbor and they weren't even paying any attention to it because they didn't have any context for it and at some point they saw a man on the deck and all of a sudden they realized oh here's a contact that's a person we gotta get out of here this is a big bad thing coming at us and so and, and I think with what we're doing with AI these days, it's easier to understand how that works. Because if you've got an AI that's programmed with a certain database, then it's going to find things that fit in that database. And if it's outside that, it's not going to see it. And our brains work that way more than we would like to acknowledge. And, and it's definitely trying to tease the most out of a noisy signal by looking for expert, you know, based on its past history, anticipating what it's going to find, and then confirming that when it's with the least amount of data to confirm it. But it gets us in trouble. Some people get in trouble because they're just expecting the worst from everybody, and so they'll interpret a neutral situation to be a bad situation, and other people will see the neutral situation and see it to be good, and they'll get taken to the cleaners by fraudsters. So, what you said earlier is really powerful, which is um, that uh, who is to say that the experience of, uh, of taking birth into uh, an abundant and prosperous civilization of only positive qualia is a better um, feeling of infinity than a feeling of infinity that gets extremely contracted in trauma and then liberates itself from the illusion or does not and just continues into a negative qualia um, for its experience. And that's a very powerful question. And it's also part of the 
simplicity of things like the uh, prismatic refraction of light um, or the co the color palette um, <clears throat> that yeah that there's no compartmentalization of the best and then the guiding of it towards what is quote best um, and yet at the same time there uh, there is the recognition that there was uh, tremendous uh, trauma that this collective has been through and that uh, if one would like to entertain some story or idea or concept or narrative about infinity and its exploration, it could very much be that this is one of the uh, deepest, darkest, traumatic experiences it's gone through with forgetting itself and then waking back up to remember itself and to build a prosperous playground for itself here on earth for millennia to come and that's some funny ass narrative that we tell ourselves um <laughs> and uh yeah and it's it's up to whatever you feel really it's really up to whatever you feel if you feel like you want to promulgate continuous transgenerational traumas uh, under the excitement of, of creating more uh, suffering uh, to then create greater liberation or not, um, go for it. Uh, if you, if you want to end that, uh, if you want to create abundance where children are born into abundant water, food, and energy infrastructures that enable them to and be taught and still be taught let's say hypothetically still be taught about suffering and still be taught about a sense of self and still be taught about shame and about these core root uh emotion um that they don't necessarily get as contractive an experience with if if that uh <clears throat> if that fancies you then perhaps that's what fancies you and you want to uh build something like that where they can uh play uh, more where you can play more freely continually so it's all it's all a very interesting color palette and explosion of uh, of whatever you say goes there's nobody else here but you whatever you say goes bam yeah well, I don't think we're in danger of paradise descending upon us anytime soon. So I don't spend a lot on that one, but <laughs> there's plenty to work with there. There's plenty Keep to reminding work. people of that. Yeah, you, you got lots. Yeah, would you? So just if you want to complain about the world, well, that's just an opportunity. Go for it. You know, I don't think we're out of opportunities anytime soon. And one thing I've noticed in my lifetime is when I was young, there was lots of just survival from material needs point of view played into the equation. And, right. and there wasn't helicopter parenting and stuff like that going on. And, you know, in a couple of generations, that whole picture is like kids get everything handed to them. And yet they're stressed. It's like there's almost this balancing act between uh, material needs versus mental emotional needs as the material needs become just handed to people it just, it's like it ramps up the 
emotional trauma for some reason or makes people more insecure, makes life less meaningful. And I think that's probably a trauma in itself too. And a lot of people are having a crisis of what makes life worth living. And, um, and when you're just fighting to meet your basic needs, you don't have to worry about that. It's like, like my buddy Gino says that's a first world problem versus a third world problem. You know, there, there's some reality to that. Yes. And so, but there's still problems at every level. It seems like they just they evolve and take on new forms. You know. I mean, from my point of view, I see pretty much a never-ending challenge just from the environment and dealing with planetary issues that we've got to deal with. Uh, if not that, then maybe ways to move off the planet and do things off the planet and the challenges that will provide. And there's always plenty of chaos to be interjected in the physical system, so there will always be that to deal with, navigate. So right. I'm not worried about running out of things to yeah. deal with yes. on the negative side. And I like how this also circles us to the more that we can hold the whole at the same time as enjoy the focal, the non-focal at the same time as focal. Yeah, it really just brings so much more just flowfulness and peace, love, and greater clarity in uh, what is actually going on. Um, and... And then enable us, equip us better to to understand what's going on, and then and then help shepherd whatever we want. If we want more abundance, or however we see things, however we want. I mean, there's plenty of challenge to be facing just shifting to a balancing out masculine versus feminine in our environment. Right. That's many generation project, I assume. Right, just, one of there's been going on for a lot of generations up to now, and it's still not dealt with. Wow, there's such a good, uh, there's such a good access point. It feels like for the male bodies to to learn the feminine. There's there's a really good access point that it feels like is in the root the root chakra, if you will. Uh, and it's something that I feel like I'll be making more content about. But that when the male also learns, when the male body also learns how to let go of the contracted energy around its own root, it can then learn how to close that loop on itself, that Taurus loop. When this opens up, it can more easily cl close that Taurus loop, and then and then also understand what it's like to be the receptive, which is the feminine female body, 
if you will, and receive and receive rather than contract and close, but like learn how to receive. Um, yeah, there's, there's that. And then it shows up in such simple ways also, just those that will, won't even receive a, the struggle to receive even a simple gift of some sort very simple hey you, you want to just uh relax a bit honey while i go and make some tea or whatever it is like just no i'll do it myself <clears throat> yes. yeah but a lot of people have trouble with that trouble with receiving trouble, trouble. with receiving yes, yes. Learning that is an art. Yeah. A work in progress. Lots of things are work in progress. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of my worldview. God's got to be a work in progress if you want to objectify God somehow, which is dangerous territory. It's more yeah. like... The whole thing's a creative process, and it's all a work in progress. Yeah, the ultimate painter forever painting. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of great uh, topics that we covered. And I really, really, really enjoyed the conversation. Really Me too. I love hearing that. Thanks. And I feel like there's so much to still uh, play on together, which is really exciting. Again, I'm really grateful for Ori pointing this out. I knew as soon as he pointed it out that I was excited about it because it's it's very rare that that he does. And then when he does, I know that it's important. And more and more of the conversations that I have on the show are of this caliber which is really exciting. And it also leads to what I feel like is more and more um, osmosis between uh, whatever lattices and energies are happening here. And then that can uh, serve, yeah, better. And it, it's just really exciting, Jeff. I, I really appreciate you and I appreciate the, the worldview that you, that you have and um, and I look forward to potentially continued conversations yeah I do too I think what you're describing there is some parallel processes we don't have very good language for yet <laughs> I think are totally unappreciated and definitely from the feminine side yeah, yeah they will. yes yes that's so good so Jeff, what would be the best place for people to check out more of you? Hmm, that's a hard question because there aren't too many. But I've done presentations at different meetings that I've got a little bit of it available online. Not a lot. I could put more pretty easily. I've got a, a web address at paradigmsofcreativity.com. 
com that there's a little bit up on. I like like I have some presentations that I could put links up if I figure out how to do it. A little bit tech challenged on some of the web stuff, but anyway. So uh, we'll have we'll we'll maybe have some of this in the description for people to go and check out. Okay. Yeah, Luke could put up some more stuff or put some links on. Yeah, and perhaps that's also something that we can yeah, help is get the content up and help with that. Yeah. Supposed to be working on a writing project that isn't very far into it yet. Want to do a book project around a, like a self-user's guide for conscious robots. And maybe at some point I'll get ambitious on that better than I have so far. Basically write a substrate independent user's manual for conscious agents. It brings in some of the essential hardware for survival in a evolutionary environment, survival of the fittest environment. It might be universal across either biological or non-biological ways that that could be implemented. But interesting, anyway, just a way to play around with some of this stuff. Something that would be a work in progress. Ideally, you could put in additional updates and sections as they become more well-defined. Right. Like some of the stuff we've worked with in an industrial environment where there's constant updates being issued. And what's the best way to address a certain problem? Anyway. Yep. Right. Someday. Maybe. Right. Well, it feels like that's coming through, coming through as a mycelial network. That's that's coming through, which is great. Yeah, and it will help us heal. Yeah. So excellent. And then also, uh, thank you everybody also for tuning in. We're very uh, grateful that you joined us, and would love to hear from you in the comments below also. So drop us a comment with how you felt, what, uh, what resonated, what didn't, that kind of stuff. Why? <laughs> Subscribe to the channel if you haven't yet. Like the video if you, you enjoyed it. Also share it with people that you feel like this would resonate with if you would like to. And you check out all of Jeff's links. Um, also check out our links. The most exciting projects are available on uh, the websites below, especially Home Dow, which is helping us make the shift into the higher awareness communities and having the basic need needs infrastructures be met across Earth. And that's it. I'm really looking forward to continued play together, Jeff. Me too. Excellent. We've got more we could cover. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Let's all end the recording and then we'll, uh, we'll stay in here for, uh, for a little bit longer. All right. Bye everyone. Bye.